Good morning to you all. <laughs> Can you believe our eight weeks is up? No. Yeah, went fast, didn't it? All right, let's pray. Father God, we come before you now with awe and gratitude. Awe for the almighty creator of the universe that you are and gratitude for the loving, up-close, and personal God that you are to your people whom you've saved through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Bible, and we especially are grateful for all that you have taught us over the last eight weeks from this letter to the Colossians. Thank you for each of these women who have carefully and thoughtfully studied your word and for the friendships that we have made as we have come together to share what you have also taught us faithfully each week. God, as we gather to hear this last teaching, I pray that you would make my words clear and understandable and that you would help each of us to be able to fully concentrate on your truth for these next few moments. I pray this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Well, when I was a little girl, I can remember my mother and my aunt stopping to talk to a woman as we were shopping downtown. That was way before malls. They didn't have them then. Um, Anyway, after the woman left, my mother remarked uh, to my aunt that that the woman was somewhat of a busybody. And I was pretty young, so I asked what that meant, and she said, the woman seemed to know a lot about other people's lives and talked about them to others. I think mom was sort of sugarcoating it because I realized later that was my mother's code for gossiping. (laughs) So later in life, I remember a a health club had a whole advertising campaign that was encouraging everyone to exercise and become a busybody. So busybody took on a whole new meaning. Well, this morning, I think we can change the meaning once again and give it a really positive spin. In the Bible, the church is called the body. And so as I was preparing the lecture this week, I began thinking about the body of Christ as being a busy body. Busy praying, busy telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ, busy loving one another, and busy doing the Lord's will, all to the glory of God. So let's look at our outline today. I didn't have a lot of them, so I kind of interspersed them. You might have to share them. Uh, Anyway, this morning I've called my lecture The Busy Body, and it's in Colossians 4, 2 through 18. First of all, in our first division, we're going to look at the prayer in verses 2 through 4. And then we're going to look at the path in verses 5 through 6. And then in the third division, we're going to look at the people in verses 7 through 18. So let's go into our first division now where we're going to be looking at the prayer in verses 2 through 4. The first thing Paul does in this section is remind us how to pray. Verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul doesn't just say pray, he gets very specific and very descriptive of how we are to pray. And we looked up those descriptive words this week. First of all, he said to pray steadfastly, and the definition we found was firmly loyal, unswerving, and not subject to change and determined. And that means that we should be praying regularly. Excuse me, I did this last time, coughed right in the microphone. We should be praying praying regularly, whether we feel like it or not. Our prayers lining up with God's truth and with God's will. 
There should be good content to our prayer and not some vague prayer that we don't even ever realize whether it's been answered or not. Secondly, he said our prayer should be watchful. That would be carefully observant, attentive, and alert. And so I think we need to be watchful in many areas. We need to be alert to our own sin and repentant of that in prayer. We need to be careful about false teaching. And we need to be looking for opportunities to speak the gospel to others. And so alert to how we can help others. And even watchful for the Lord's return. That's a thing to be watchful for that's really good. Finally, he said, with thanksgiving, the act of giving thanks and acknowledgement. And my personal favorite definition was a celebration of divine goodness. Thankfulness is not just a part of our prayers. It's the very basis of our prayers. Thankful for the salvation God has provided in his son, Jesus Christ. Thankful that God continues to gently reveal our sin to us. Thankful for his continued forgiveness. And thankful for the eternal life that we have. And thankful for the Bible. And thankful for his daily provision for us. And thankful for all the opportunities that he gives us to share his gospel. I don't know about you, but the question we had in our lesson this week about writing down three words or phrases that described our prayer time was very convicting. I thought about any number of words that would describe my prayer time. Over the years, my prayers have sometimes been sporadic, rushed, self-centered, unorganized, distracted, lethargic, demanding, questioning, and truthfully, there was one time I was extremely critical, mad, and unthankful to God for the way he had answered my prayer. And yet, in the very next breath, I knew that that was wrong, and I was asking for his forgiveness and choosing to rest in his sovereignty for me in that situation. I knew I could not blame God for what had happened. Well, I'm sure we've all had times of prayer like that. But you know what? We have a really encouraging promise from Paul in Romans 8, 26, and 27. And it says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, that would be God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. And this is what I really want you to hear. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But then we also have this imperative from Paul in Galatians to pray steadfastly and watchful and with thanksgiving. What do we do with that? Is Paul contradicting himself? Well, I don't think so. Not at all. Remember what Paul said. <clears throat> Remember what Paul was praying for the believers in Colossians 1.9, clear back at the first of our study. He was praying that you may be filled with the understanding of his will. There's that word again. The, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as we mature in Christ, our prayers are going to mature. It's good to have our minds and our senses fully engaged and connected with God as we pray. And prayers that are full of spiritual wisdom and the understanding of his will. You know, just 
finding the time to pray sometimes can be a huge problem, isn't it? With kids and husbands and housework and jobs. And um, so what I really encourage you is to find something that works for you. Since I'm so easily distracted, I think I'm a bit ADD, I find that standing up with my eyes open with a list walking around works best for me. Uh, If I sit with my eyes closed or if I pray in bed, I go to sleep. (laughs) And so know what works best for you. Uh, Writing out prayers often helps me stay focused. And then you have this wonderful prayer journal and you can go back and write in answers also. Um, If I promise to pray for someone every day, uh, I will often at times attach an everyday task to that promise so that I'll actually remember to pray for them every day. Something like praying at a red light, or don't pray with your eyes closed, you have to watch for the green light. (laughs) And then um, maybe unloading the dishwasher or brushing my teeth. So ask other people what they do to stay focused in prayer. And then if you have a good idea, share it, because we all need help in that area. Well, let's continue on in this section of Scripture and see what Paul has to say about prayer by looking at verses 3 and 4. He says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And that's a great model for prayer. It's very specific. It's asking others to pray for us that we can have opportunities to speak the gospel to others. And it's asking them to pray that we can speak clearly as we do that. That's God's priority, and it can be ours too as we pray. So here's the main truth I'd like for you to take away from this section of Scripture. Purposely pray the priority of God. Purposely pray the priority of God. And the priority of God is for everyone to know and accept his son, Jesus, as their savior. So purposely pray the priority of God. So let's examine our prayers this week. It's not wrong to pray for our needs. God has told us to do that, to pray for our daily bread. But let's not stop there. Let's let this passage of scripture really spur us on to pray steadfastly and faithfully each day, to pray watchfully for those opportunities that God brings across your path so that we can share the gospel with others. And may the undergirding of all our prayers be that thankfulness that God, to God for all that he has done for us and in the li- our life and in the life of those around us. So here's some questions to ask ourselves about this. What changes do I need to make in my prayer time to become more focused? What changes do I need to make in my prayer time to become more focused? And then how can my request be more in line with God's will? Do we need to study the Bible more? That's probably a possibility because you only know God's will by studying the Bible. So how can my prayer request be more in line with God's will? Well, let's go into our second division and then where we're going to look at the path. Let's read uh, verses 5 and 6. It says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, let's just zero in for a moment on that first phrase. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. If you take out the words in wisdom, it says, walk toward outsiders. So the name of the path is evangelism. The path is giving out the gospel to unbelievers, those who are currently outside the grace of God. It's the great commission that Jesus gave to his uh, disciples in Matthew 28. You know, yes, we live in a body of believers, but that body is to be deliberately busy in reaching out to unbelievers. And now let's look for a moment at that phrase, walk in wisdom, and the context in which Paul tells us to walk in wisdom when we're walking toward outsiders. First of all, he says, making the best use of time. And that brings any number of things to mind. Do we want to neglect the responsibilities God has given us with our husbands and children and be going on a very open-ended trip to Africa? I don't think in this room of women that that really applies to us, does it? But what can we do? Uh, For us, it means more likely choosing to be very much involved in the outreach opportunities right here at our church, and we have a lot of those that we can do. Being involved with our neighbors or being involved with people at work as those opportunities arise. It means speaking God's truth about Jesus into any situation we are in that includes unbelievers. Parties, soccer games, baby showers, at your hairstylist, with your nail person. You know, let's let's not huddle together uh, in these little groups of Christians and never be mindful of the people that live outside of the grace of God. Making the best use of time might also involve some honest evaluation of how we're spending our time and who we're spending it with. You know, if we've been friends with an unbeliever for 10 years and we've never had the opportunity to speak the gospel to them, I think we first need to look at ourselves. Are we being bold enough? Are we taking those opportunities that God has given us? And then, if we've been a believer for 10 years, and they have just cut us off every time we have tried to speak about Jesus, or maybe they have even flat out told us they don't want to hear about Jesus, is that really the best use of our time? A good question to ask ourselves is, Are they pulling us closer to sin, or are we pointing them more towards holiness? That's a hard question, but definitely one we need to ask ourselves. Um, I had a friend like that, and I was really convicted by God that I was was gossiping more than I was gospeling. So she really wasn't interested in what I had to say about Jesus. So over time, I just kind of gradually withdrew from that friendship, and it just sort of died a natural death. Matthew ten fourteen and Acts eighteen six and 7 both speak of moving on when there is a rejection of the gospel. That's not unkind, but it is a better use of your time to move on. The next thing Paul says about walking in wisdom is to let our speech be always gracious. And that means speaking about Jesus in a way that is kind, 
that is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the other person. It's speaking the truth of the gospel in a way that makes them desire that truth for themselves. We don't want to ever be judgmental or proud or smug or condescending and definitely not out to win a debate. It's better to walk away graciously than to become a Christian militant. Well, in addition to our speech being gracious, Paul also tells us that it's to be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I did some reading about salt this week. It was really interesting. Did you know that there was a time when salt was just as valuable as gold? You could paint a pound of salt. You could trade a pound of salt for a pound of gold. So it was held in very high esteem and honor, and wages were often paid in salt. Our uh, word salary comes from the Greek word for salt. Salt is what makes food more palatable, and salt prevents corruption and decay, and salt preserves. Under Mosaic law, it was added to the sacrifices at the temple. Numbers 18.19 mentions a covenant of salt between God and the high priest Aaron in which God gave a portion of the temple sacrifices to the priests to eat. And that probably explains why the salt was put on the sacrifice because it preserved the meat for the priests. And in Matthew 5.13, Jesus calls believers the salt of the earth. So if our speech is to be seasoned with salt, what does that look like in our everyday life? It means we speak to others about Jesus. Why? Because he prevents the corruption and decay. We are all sinners, and his death on his cross and his resurrection defeated sin and death. And so it prevents corruption and decay. And like salt, the gospel preserves. We need to tell others about that eternal life that can be theirs when they have faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the main truth I'd like you to walk away from this, uh, this morning with this, from this section. Wisely and graciously walk the path toward outsiders. Wisely and graciously walk the path toward outsiders. Being wise means to carefully consider the best use of your time, Being wise means to carefully consider if you're staying on that path God has for you or whether you're walking dangerously close to falling off into a dark place by being with someone who really doesn't want to hear about Jesus. Being wise means to carefully consider if your words are salty enough. Are you speaking about Jesus enough? And being wise means to carefully consider if your words might be too salty. You know, just as we can put too much salt on food and make it really undesirable, we can sometimes just beat someone over the head with, the, with Jesus Christ until they kind of just throw up their hands and walk away. So there's got to be that delicate balance there, and it has to be different with each person. And so that's where walking in wisdom comes in. We need to ask God for his wisdom uh, with each outsider that he brings across our path so that we know how we ought to answer them. Well, here's some questions to ask about this. 
how am I taking advantage of all the opportunities that my church provides for me to speak the gospel to outsiders? And our church is very good at that. We have an ISI uh, Thanksgiving dinner coming up for the international students. And uh, so I, if you're not involved, I'd encourage you to be involved there. And then the other question I would ask is, how will I begin to speak gospel truth into all the relationships in my life? How will I begin to speak gospel truth into all the relationships in my life? Well, we've talked about the prayer and we've talked about the path. Let's go into our third division, and we're going to talk about the people in verses 7 through 18. You know, as Paul ends this letter to the Colossians, we see not just a list of names. What we see is a busy body, and we see what that busy body was doing in those days. It it's an example of Christianity up close and personal. It's real people doing real things. We see Paul in prison because he has been on that path toward outsiders, speaking the truth of the gospel. And here he's asking for prayer to have an open door to speak even more. That was in the first part of our section. But I have included him in there because he did have an open door to speak even when he was in prison. Paul was probably treated better than other uh, prisoners because actually Paul was a Roman citizen. His father was a Roman. So instead of being placed in the worst, darkest, smelliest part of the prison and being put in stocks, he was most likely chained to Roman guards during the day and night. And I'm pretty sure, knowing that Paul, he made the best use of his time by speaking to them about Jesus Christ. And so they may have thought he was a captive, but actually they were his captive audience. In verse 7, we see Tychicus. And he was an Asiatic Christian mentioned many times in the New Testament. You can uh, look that up if you want. But he was sent by Paul to different places, and now he's being sent to Colossae to tell them what was going on with Paul and to encourage their hearts. And Paul describes him as a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. In verse 9, we see Onesimus, and he was sent with Tychicus and was described by Paul as our faithful and beloved brother, one of you. So they were from Colossae. He was from Colossae. Uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave only owned by uh, Philemon, a Christian slave owner, and he, Philemon, lived in Colossae. And so you can read this letter to Philemon where Paul asked him to free Anasimus. It's a very poignant letter. Uh, Tychicus and Anasimus probably carried both the letter to Colossae and that letter to Philemon back when they came to Colossae. And that would be kind of scary for Anasimus because he didn't know whether he was going to be freed or not. He might have had to go back into slavery. In verse uh, 10, we see Aristarchus, and he's mentioned many times in the New Testament, as traveling with Paul, and now he's a fellow prisoner with Paul, and he sends his greetings. Also in verse 10, we see Mark, who sends greetings. As you remember, Mark went on that first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, who was his cousin, and you also remember that Mark left them in the middle of the journey, and we're not sure exactly why, but you remember that Paul then had some reservations about ever traveling with Mark again. 
But you can see here in this letter that his uh, feelings toward Mark have softened a bit because he's saying, welcome him. And later, the Paul, uh, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. In verse 11, we have Jesus, who was called Justice. And Paul writes about these three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, as the only men of the circumcision among his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So that let us know that they were of Jewish descent. And Paul writes that they have been a comfort to him. You know, prisons in those days did not supply food or water or blankets or any of the comforts. And so they were probably his support team while he was in prison, supplying his daily needs. In verse 12, we have Epaphras. He might have also been a fellow prisoner, but it doesn't say. In Colossians 1, 7, he's the one who taught the Colossians about Jesus. Epaphras also sends his greetings. And Paul writes that Epaphras is always struggling on their behalf in his prayers. See, people even then struggled with praying. And they stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That probably wasn't what it meant. It probably meant that he worked really hard at it. (laughs) So Epaphras has worked hard for them and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. In verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, the the gospel of Luke's and Acts, also sends his greetings. And in 14, we have Demas sending his greetings. But sadly, in 2 Timothy, which is a book written several years later after Colossians, and it was Paul was freed after this first uh, um, from the Roman prisons for a while, and then this book that he wrote in 2 Timothy was his second imprisonment, so he was writing this. But Paul mentions in 2 Timothy uh, that Demas had deserted him, and in He said he was in love with the world and had fled to Thessalonica. So that's a really sad thing, isn't it? In verse 16, we see Nympha, and the church uh, used her house as a meeting place. In verse 17, we see Archippus, and Paul is encouraging him to fulfill the ministry that he received in the Lord. We're not sure what that ministry was, but Paul's words also encouraging us to do the same today, to fulfill the ministry that we've received from the Lord. So passages of scripture like this help us see the reality of that verse in Colossians 3.11 that says, Christ is all and in all. This is a very diverse group made up of different nationalities, uh, Jews and Gentiles, different professions, and uh, there's also a slave and a woman included in there. So it, it just is proof of that verse that the gospel is for everyone. As we read about these flesh and blood people, we also have a better sense of how the body is interconnected all doing their part to help one another and make it possible for the gospel to spread to that world of outsiders. Paul ends his letter by giving instructions to read and share the letters he has written and ask them that they remember his chains, Uh, remember especially to pray for him. But uh, this also might have ended up uh, resulting in people sending money uh, and uh, other things to help care for him while he was in prison. And then he ends his letter, much as the way he started it eight weeks ago. Grace to you, what better thing can we desire for our loved ones 
then having them know and remember the depth of the saving grace of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the main truth I'd like you to take away from this section. The people of God are to love and care for one another. The people of God are to love and care for one another. And here are some questions to ask ourselves. How is God leading me to help and love others in the body of Christ? How is God leading me to help others and love others in the body of Christ? And then I think a really good question to ask ourselves would be, what relationship with another believer in my life needs to be restored in Christ? Sometimes we kind of get crossways, don't we? So what relationship with another believer in my life needs to be restored in Christ? Well, it was fun to think of the body of Christ as being a busy body, wasn't it? Do you know that there are 47 one another verses that give instructions as to how the body of Christ is to respond and interact with one another. And over half of these verses are written by Paul, and it shows that Paul had a very deep uh, concern for the body of Christ. We don't have time to look at them now unless you want to stay till about noon. Uh, But what I did was I typed them out and I put them on a sheet of paper for you. And you can get a copy of them on the way out. Some of them need to be maybe read in the context that they're written so you have a better understanding. But I think sometimes it's good to have like something like that all in one spot. It's a lot more impactful to look at them that way. But what I want to urge you is please, please, please do not think of these as another to-do list. Rather, think of them as a heart check tool. When we find ourselves at odds with another believer, it's time to examine our own heart first and see what sin there is in ourself that is causing causing this negative response toward that other believer. And then after identifying our own sin and taking it to the Lord to repent of it and ask for his forgiveness, only then would be a good time to look at this collection of one another verses and understand the love that God wants us to have for one another. And then really remember that all of this is only done in the power of his Holy Spirit who gives us, first of all, that heart desire and the strength to do God's will. These one another verses help us live out the truth of Colossians three, fourteen and 15, which says, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let's pray. Father God, your truth is everlasting and amazing, just as you are the one true God, everlasting and amazing. Thank you for revealing yourself and your truth to us. Thank you for the desire that truth brings forth in us to share your saving truth with others. And I pray that you will give us many opportunities to speak your truth uh, to, each, to other people as uh, we go through this holiday season. 
As we take a break from group study during these upcoming days to be thankful for your grace and goodness to us and to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus, may we each individually be faithful to seek you through your word each day and be daily mindful of your faithfulness to us. Strengthen and equip us through our times of prayer and Bible study to do your will and to bring glory to you in all that we do. In the name of our mighty Savior, we pray. Amen.